This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads, and we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our podcast on Packard versus Packard, which is when Theophilus Packard had his wife Elizabeth institutionalized because, in his words, she was insane. That was not her opinion of it at all. Part one, we talked about the early lives of the two of them and how they had an apparently happy and functional marriage for about 15 years that crumbled and became abusive. And then he, as I just said, had her involuntarily committed. Today, we are going to pick up with Elizabeth's time in this hospital. First, we are going to set a little context about the state of mental health treatment in the 19th century. Some of that's really horrifying. Some of this uh, language, like we wouldn't necessarily throw around the word insane to describe a person today, uh, things like that, uh, super common language at the time. And um, you can probably understand this episode without having heard part one, um, but part one is really a lot of the detail of how we got to this point. Yeah. So before the late 18th and early 19th century, people with serious mental health illnesses in the United States and Europe were generally placed into facilities commonly called lunatic asylums. And these asylums were not about treatment. They were essentially prisons. Patients were often put into restraints and left there with little in the way of comfort or care, and sometimes they were actively abused by the staff or others living in the facility. And some of these asylums were also tourist attractions, with visitors coming to gawk at the patients. In the United States, that started to shift in the late 1700s and early 1800s. The nation's first private mental hospital was the Asylum for the Relief of Persons Deprived of the Use of Their Reason, also known as the Friends Hospital, which was opened by Quakers in 1817. The Friends Hospital focused on the idea of moral treatment, which became the standard of care in most mental hospitals by the middle of the 19th century. The basic idea had been put into practice by physician William Tuke at an asylum called The Retreat in York, England, which opened in 1796. 
Over the late 1700s and early 1800s, physicians in Britain and France continued to refine the retreat's methods. Moral treatment focused on the idea that an asylum should treat its patients humanely, with the institution acting almost like a stern and paternalistic guardian. Unlike these earlier lunatic asylums, patients weren't kept in restraints. They were expected to live in a clean, orderly, and polite way in a strict and disciplined environment. Patients were expected to do some chores around the building or the grounds on a regular schedule to give them a sense of purpose and to keep them on this predictable daily cycle. Doctors might also prescribe treatments along a more medical model, including drugs, hydrotherapy, exercise, things like that. In a lot of ways, this was a big step forward from what was common in lunatic asylums, but it turned out to be hard to carry out in practice. Moral treatment was only helpful for a relatively small number of patients. A person who was mostly exhausted and stressed and needed time to recuperate might leave the hospital feeling like their treatment had cured them. But for many mental illnesses, this just was not the case. A patient with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression or any number of other mental illnesses might be helped to a degree by the predictable daily routine in a calm and ordered setting, but moral treatment really didn't address the illness itself. Also, many of the people who wound up in these hospitals didn't have a mental illness. The field of psychiatry was really in its infancy without a clear sense of what was or wasn't a mental illness. So people with drug and alcohol addictions, developmental disabilities, and epilepsy, all kinds of other conditions wound up in mental hospitals, and so did people who just weren't behaving as their families or society expected them to. There weren't many of these private hospitals at first. They were mostly in more affluent areas and available to wealthier people. So most people with mental illnesses uh, that kept them from being able to function in society were kept out of sight at home. Or if their families couldn't or wouldn't care for them, they wound up in almshouses or even prisons. Care typically was not good in any of these scenarios. People caring for family members at home might have good and loving intentions. But there was so much stigma surrounding mental illness and ideas that they were brought on by things like possession, a lot of different explanations for mental illnesses that didn't amount to an illness, um, that people caring for family members were just as likely to be abusive or neglectful. Prisons and almshouses were brutal and degrading in general. And then on top of that, they just were not equipped to handle the behaviors that came along with untreated mental illnesses. This all started to shift in the 1840s and 50s, as reformers like Dorothea Dix advocated for state-funded asylums and better care within those asylums. Most of these newly built asylums followed the moral care model, and some existing state hospitals began using it as well. New asylum buildings were typically designed according to the Kirkbride plan, developed by Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride. They were divided into symmetrical wings and wards with lots of fresh air and natural light. Reformers also advocated for the idea that people with mental illnesses needed to be cared for rather than simply locked away. But it quickly turned out that implementing the moral care model at all these newly opened hospitals could be really difficult. As the public started to think of mental illness as something that required treatment at a hospital, admissions skyrocketed and hospitals quickly became overcrowded. They went from clean and orderly and calm to unsanitary, understaffed, and chaotic. Waves of immigration to the United States meant that sometimes patients didn't speak the same language as the doctors or the staff. 
Staff turnover tended to be very high, and hospitals were often run by boards of trustees who might be more focused on politics than on care. Some of these boards also had a reputation for being corrupt. And even though the medical field was beginning to think of mental illness as a treatable illness rather than a personal moral failing, there was still a lot of stigma and a perception that it was up to patients to get better. If a patient wasn't improving, doctors and staff often concluded that they weren't trying or that they were willfully refusing to get better. So it was common for patients to be cared for by undertrained, frustrated staff who thought that these people in their care were simply being obstinate. Abuse and cruelty continued to be commonplace, even in hospitals that were theoretically following the moral treatment model. There were also, of course, a number of medical treatments that were going on that were super questionable by today's standards. This was a state of mental health care in the United States when Elizabeth Packard was hospitalized. It was improving over what it had been, but it still had a really long way to go. We will get to her time in the hospital after a sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. When Elizabeth Packard was admitted at the Illinois State Asylum and Hospital for the Insane, its superintendent was Dr. Andrew McFarland of New Hampshire. 
he was at the top of his field. He was part of the first wave of people to join the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane, or the AMSAII, which was a precursor to the American Psychiatric Association. In 1860, he was its president. He had tried to hand in his resignation, citing a serious illness in the family, and when he tried to do that, the association had declined. Elizabeth's admission note read, quote, June 19, 1860, Elizabeth P. Packard, Kankakee County, married, aged 44, native of Massachusetts, in this state three years, slightly insane for two years, was in Worcester Hospital 25 years ago, present attack more decided the past four months, supposed cause is excessive application of body and mind, Reverend Theophilus Packard. McFarland's diagnosis was moral insanity with monomania. Moral insanity was an accepted diagnosis through most of the 19th century. In 1835, Dr. J.C. Pritchard described it this way, quote, There is a form of mental derangement in which the intellectual faculties are uninjured while the disorder is manifested principally or alone in the state of feelings, temper, or habits. The moral principles of the mind are depraved or perverted. The power of self-government is lost or greatly impaired. And the individual is incapable of conducting himself with decency and propriety in the business of life. Monomania was another 19th century diagnosis, and as its name suggests, it was a mania connected to one specific thing. And in Elizabeth's case, that was religion. Dr. McFarlane seems to have genuinely believed that Elizabeth was mentally ill and that his diagnosis was the correct one. Her husband, too, seems to have genuinely thought that his wife was, in his word, insane. For her part, Elizabeth believed these two men were conspiring to imprison her for her religious views and her refusal to be totally subservient to her husband. Meanwhile, both her doctor and her husband believed that these religious views and her lack of subservience were evidence of her mental illness. Elizabeth described it this way, quote, In my first struggle after my independence, I lost my personal liberty. Sad beginning. Had it not been better for me to submit to oppression and spiritual bondage rather than have attempted to break the fetters of marital and religious despotism? No, I cannot feel that I have done either for myself, for others, the least wrong, in the course I have thus far taken. Therefore, I have no recantations to make and can give no pledge of further subjection to either of these powers, where their claims demand the surrender of my conscience to their dictation. And this is what they call my insanity, and for which I was sent to the asylum to be cured." I think it will be a long time before this cure will be effected. At the start of her hospitalization, Elizabeth thought that Dr. McFarland already believed her to be sane or that he would come around to that opinion in short order. It was very obvious to her that she was sane, and she thought that it would soon be obvious to him as well. So for about four months, she was in a bright, airy ward with a lot of freedom, and she felt like she was being treated more like a guest than like a patient. In those first months in the hospital, Elizabeth wrote a document praising the doctor and encouraging him to release her. He ignored it, and Elizabeth realized that he did not believe that she was sane. So she started actively advocating for herself and her release. Her oldest son came to visit her, without his father's permission, but couldn't secure her release because he was not 21 years old. Friends tried to get a writ of habeas corpus, but they were told that because she was married, that had to come from her husband. After Elizabeth wrote up a second document, which was scathing in its opinions of the hospital and its superintendent, she was transferred to another ward. 
a much less nice ward, which was home to patients whose illnesses just couldn't be treated with fresh air and an orderly schedule. She found the conditions there filthy and its staff cruel and its patients uncared for. When patients had visitors, she would tell their families about cruelty she had witnessed in the hospital. She started cleaning the entire ward herself and organizing the other patients in protesting their conditions. This included an ongoing campaign to destroy ordinary hospital property like bed linens and brooms. Elizabeth was eventually transferred out of this ward and given a private room to keep her from influencing the other patients. And Elizabeth met Dorothea Dix when Dix visited in 1861. Elizabeth called her, quote, a Christian, although honestly and conscientiously wrong in sustaining our present system of insane asylums. Elizabeth admired Dix's compassion and her advocacy for the compassionate care of asylum patients, but thought she was simply wrong in her belief that there needed to be a robust system of asylums in the first place. Elizabeth thought most people who were committed didn't need to be, and that working to build more asylums was damaging. Throughout all of this, Dr. McFarland was updating Theophilus with reports about his wife's condition, that Elizabeth's religious views were unchanged, that she was unrepentant in her refusal to be submissive to her husband, that she was inspiring restlessness and insubordination among the other patients. He also told Theophilus that Elizabeth had lost all of her marital and maternal instinct, even as Elizabeth's own writing reveals that she was really grieving over the separation from her children and the strain that all of this was putting on them. She was especially distressed at the idea that her daughter Libby was going to have to bear all the burdens of running this household. During uh, Elizabeth's hospitalization, Libby was between the ages of 10 and 12 years old. In September of 1862, Elizabeth was summoned to appear before the hospital's board of trustees after months of petitioning for a release. She read a document that denounced Calvinism, explaining her own beliefs and why she refused to raise her children according to their father's religious views. Dr. McFarland had screened this document ahead of time, and it began, quote, Gentlemen, I am accused of teaching my children doctrines ruinous in their tendency and such as alienate them from their father. I reply that my teachings and practice both are ruinous to Satan's cause and do alienate my children from satanic influences. I teach Christianity. My husband teaches Calvinism. They are antagonistic systems and uphold antagonistic authorities. Christianity upholds God's authority, Calvinism the devil's authority. But then she went on to read a second document, one that the doctor had not approved ahead of time, in which she accused her husband and the doctor of conspiring against her, then detailed a range of injustices and indignities that she had witnessed at the hospital. Having done all that, though, she asked them not to release her. Divorce was out of the question from Theophilus's point of view, and Elizabeth did not think that she would be safe with him. She also realized that her father and brothers did not have the means to support her, so she needed to figure out how she might support herself. She planned to spend the rest of her time in the hospital writing a book. Her husband and her doctor had been on the same page about her care until this point, and this is where they started to diverge. Dr. McFarland pressed the trustees to discharge Elizabeth because of how much trouble she was causing him. Meanwhile, Theophilus pressed them to keep her there because he had no other plan to take care of her. After this meeting, Dr. McFarland told Elizabeth that he would help her get her book published, probably because he thought doing so would get her out of his hospital faster. But then she finished the book, and it wasn't something he could support publishing. 
It was disjointed and rambly, and a lot of it was focused on his backstory. He told her he wouldn't help her after all, and in a desperate effort to get him to change his mind, Elizabeth wrote him a love letter, effusively praising him and essentially calling him her soulmate. Finally, the hospital trustees gave Theophilus three months' notice that they would be discharging his wife. Dr. McFarlane said this was because she was incurable and because of the, quote, amount of trouble which Mrs. Packard causes us and the disastrous influence which she exerts on the other patients. Elizabeth was released on June 18, 1863, and for a time she stayed with a relative. Then she went back to Mantino to try to get custody of her children. In Elizabeth's account, when she got back to Mantino, her husband kept her locked in the nursery with the windows nailed shut. In his account, she was free to come and go. Regardless, Elizabeth wrote a letter and slipped it under the window to a passerby. A friend ultimately got that letter to Judge Charles Starr, who secured a writ of habeas corpus. Since Elizabeth was no longer institutionalized but was locked in her home, this time her husband did not have to be involved. A court date was set for a trial to determine whether she was sane. That trial started on January 12, 1864 and went on for five days. Unfortunately, we can't read testimony from it because those records have been lost. But people did hear from doctors and friends and family members and community members, some of whom said Elizabeth was mentally ill and others of whom did not. In the end, on January 18, 1864, the jury ruled that she was sane. Theophilus said the trial was a, quote, reign of mobocracy, insult, partiality, prejudice, injustice, and malignity. On the day of the verdict, he packed up their minor children and their belongings and went back to Massachusetts. This left Elizabeth without her children, with nowhere to live, and no way to support herself. She sued for divorce, but since Theophilus had already left the state, the county clerk said he could not be found, and eventually she just let the matter drop. We'll get to her life after this, including her years of work to make sure the same thing couldn't happen to other women after a sponsor break. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. After her husband moved back to Massachusetts with their youngest children, Elizabeth Packard returned to the idea she'd had in the hospital, and that was of supporting herself through writing. She started revising material that she had started in the hospital. Her first published book was called Exposure on Board the Atlantic and Pacific Car of Emancipation for the Slaves of Old Columbia, engineered by the Lightning Express or Christianity and Calvinism compared, with an appeal to the government to emancipate the slaves of the marriage union. That was followed by, quote, edited by a slave now imprisoned in Jacksonville Insane Asylum, placed there by her husband for thinking, in all capital letters, 
written under the inspection of Dr. McFarland, superintendent of Insane Asylum, Jacksonville. She used a lot of slavery imagery in her writing. Unsurprisingly, it was like 1863. This was the first of seven books and numerous pamphlets that she wrote over the next 16 years, which did turn out to be enough for her to support herself. Asylum narratives had become a popular genre. These were sensational first-person accounts of people who had been institutionalized. They were part memoir and part expose, intended to resonate with fans of the gothic fiction that was popular at the time. Elizabeth's goal was both to support herself and encourage reform to the asylum system. We should note that that also makes it hard to figure out, like, exactly what the truth is to the accounts because she was writing them to sell books when very sensational accounts were pretty typical, and she was also trying to get people to change the law, and then once again, very sensational accounts could work toward that end also. That makes it a little tricky to figure out, like, exactly what the details were, but that's just some background. She also got to work lobbying legislators to pass laws to keep what had happened to her from happening to other women. She often drafted these bills herself and lobbied lawmakers personally to get them introduced and passed. Some of her bills were focused on the rights of married women, like the right for a woman to have full custody of her children after a divorce rather than her husband just having that custody by default. There was also the right for a married woman to keep all the money she earned rather than it going to her husband again by default. Both of these were issues that directly affected her. When her husband had left with her children, she had no recourse. And when she started publishing books, she wanted to be able to keep all the money she earned. She also worked on bills relating to patient rights. She had observed that a person accused of a crime was guaranteed rights to counsel and due process. But in most states, a person who had a mental illness had none of that and might be committed without any kind of hearing. This also meant that people who weren't mentally ill could be wrongly committed. So she lobbied for bills that required a trial before a person was committed to an asylum or hospital. Elizabeth also drafted bills relating to the rights of patients and mental hospitals. When she was hospitalized, the mail was often censored or withheld from patients. So she drafted bills that guaranteed patients free and uncensored access to their mail. In 1865, following her advocacy, Illinois passed a personal liberty bill requiring a trial for any person being committed, whether they were married or not, ending the ability for husbands to have their wives committed without a trial. The legislature passed this unanimously. A later amendment made this retroactive so that people who had been admitted before 1865 were still entitled to a trial. Not long after, an investigating committee was convened to examine allegations of abuse at the Illinois Hospital for the Insane, including Elizabeth's accounts. Elizabeth was called to testify with questioning going on for about six hours. At the very end of that day, that love letter that she had written to Dr. McFarland was introduced as evidence to try to undermine her believability. Because she'd been on the stand for so long, the commission allowed her to respond to that the next day. And when she did, she explained what we said earlier, that it had been a desperate effort to flatter him and get him to help her publish her book. Ultimately, the committee found numerous examples of cruelty toward patients at the hospital, as well as evidence that McFarland had misclassified patients, housing people with minor treatable conditions with patients who were disruptive and violent. Although the commission recommended that McFarland be dismissed, the city of Jacksonville and the hospital's board of trustees stood by him. He eventually resigned on November 30th, 1868, while continuing to have a career in mental health. 
Elizabeth kept up her lobbying through all of this and through a very bitter, very public three-way dispute among herself, her husband, and her former doctor. Every time she proposed new legislation, McFarland publicly raised questions about her mental health. Theophilus was also publicly disparaging of her and she of him. This whole situation was, unsurprisingly, extremely hard on their children. When Theophilus first had Elizabeth institutionalized, the children mostly sided with her. Then, after three years with their father, they believed that he had been right about their mother's mental state. Sometime after being reunited with her, most of them supported her side of the story again, and this went back and forth repeatedly as they were with one parent or the other or had their own issues going on with their personal lives and their relationships to the rest of the family. The increasingly acrimonious relationship between Elizabeth and Theophilus affected them as well. Libby Packard, in particular, struggled with her own mental health and possibly an eating disorder for much of her life, almost certainly exacerbated by their stressful and chaotic family situation. She ultimately died in the Illinois Eastern Hospital for the Insane. In 1869, Elizabeth bought a home in Chicago where her oldest children already lived. Soon after, she learned that Massachusetts had passed a law giving mothers equal rights to custody. She filed a petition to seek custody of her three youngest children, and Theophilus didn't contest it. By this point, he really didn't have a good way to support himself or the children. He could not really find a congregation for his very conservative Calvinism anymore. And in light of Elizabeth's books and very public testimony and ongoing advocacy, a lot of people believed that he had maliciously imprisoned his wife and did not, as a result, want him to be their preacher. Elizabeth, for her part, lived a mostly comfortable life in Chicago until the Great Chicago Fire, spending more time with her children and less on her bills and advocacy. The fire destroyed her stock of books and the plates used to print them, which temporarily left her without a way to earn a living. She was eventually able to get set up with a new publisher in New York, but then another fire destroyed much of her stock there as well. This time she was insured, though, so she had some money to live on while she started again. By 1872, she only had one child left at home, and she started more aggressively taking up these causes, traveling from state to state, advocating for bills to protect patient rights and the rights of married women. Iowa passed legislation known as Packard's Law that year. This law established visiting committees, which had to include at least one woman, to inspect asylums in that state. These committees were authorized to fire abusive employees, Their contact information had to be posted in every ward of the hospital, and hospitals were also required to inform patients of their right to contact the committee about their concerns. This law also outlawed the censorship or the withholding of patients' mail, and it required a coroner's inquest if a patient mysteriously died. This bill faced a lot of resistance from Iowa's hospitals and from the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane. As Elizabeth started campaigning state by state to try to get similar measures passed elsewhere, the AMSAII embarked on what it called the Project of the Law to try to block as many of these bills as they could. They thought these bills made it harder for the hospitals to subdue patients, and they worried about how their work was damaging the reputation of the entire field. Yeah, the idea that the AMSAII thought that patients needed to be subdued caused Elizabeth Packard a great amount of outrage. She campaigned through New York and New England and then on to other parts of the country, facing character assassination by the AMSAI and by her husband everywhere she went. 
In spite of that, she tended to be very effective. I mean, she wasn't always successful. She introduced plenty of bills that didn't ultimately get passed, but in the words of a Massachusetts legislator, quote, we passed the bill because we could not do otherwise, for Mrs. Packard was so very persistent we could not bluff her off. She also went to Washington, D.C. and lobbied President Ulysses S. Grant for a bill to protect the right of patients in asylums to get their mail without censorship or surveillance. Although Grant agreed that such a law was needed, that bill did not ultimately pass. By the end of Elizabeth Packard's life, more than 30 bills had been passed to protect the rights of married women or of psychiatric patients. Some of these came from her direct advocacy, and others came from the widespread news coverage of her work and her story. In 1875, Mary Todd Lincoln went through a widely publicized insanity trial. One of the doctors who examined her was Dr. McFarland, and many reports noted that the laws governing her trial were very strict because of Elizabeth Packard's advocacy. At the same time, this trial revealed that it was still possible for someone to skirt the law to have someone else committed. Mary Todd Lincoln's son informed her of the upcoming trial at the last minute and then appointed an attorney who was in favor of committing her to represent her. In 1878, Elizabeth Packard published The Great Drama, which was four volumes long, that is 1,600 pages. It was written during her last month in the asylum, and it's very scattered and chaotic. I mean, we talked about Dr. McFarland saying that he couldn't help her get it published. It was full of references to spiritualism and personal visions that she had connected to the idea of spiritualism. These were things that she had distanced herself from in earlier published writing. It's clear from the text itself that being in the asylum for three years had taken a mental and emotional toll on her, but it also seems like at this point she had established enough of her name for herself that she didn't think it was going to hurt her if she made all of these thoughts public. Theophilus Packard died in 1885, and then Andrew McFarlane died in November of 1891. Elizabeth's writing doesn't reveal her thoughts or feelings about either of these deaths. She was, by all appearances, continuing to lobby for bills to protect women and people with mental illness throughout all of it. Elizabeth Packard died on July 26, 1897, at the age of 80, after surgery on a strangulated hernia. Her legacy is a little bit complicated. It's clear that in her own mind, she was mentally well for all of her adult life. Some of her writing, though, is chaotic and disordered in a way that it suggests that she might have had some kind of underlying condition, although not necessarily one that would have required her to be hospitalized against her will. Or... This could have been totally situational, just stemming from this combination of social expectations and her deteriorating relationship with her husband and the hospitalization itself and just all the stress that came along with all of that. And there are also questions about whether the laws she was drafting really were what was best for patients. It is clear that before she lived, it was far too easy for people to have family members committed, especially for husbands to commit their wives. But what's less clear is whether a requirement for a jury trial is the best way to protect a person's rights. Many of the laws that Packard worked on were later revised to protect patient privacy during these trials, or to require some other assessment process rather than a trial before being admitted to an inpatient facility. Regardless, though, the laws definitely offered more protection than had existed before. Yeah. Whether it's ultimately true that those were the right protections or not. <sighs> yeah. That's a stressful one because you find yourself getting raged up about people involved in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like... 
when we talked about all the moral treatment stuff in part one, like I, I've dealt with anxiety for a lot of my life. And there have definitely been times when like the situation I was in was exacerbating that. And the idea of being in an airy ward with lots of fresh air and a predictable routine, like that sounds amazing. But I wouldn't have come out of that experience with the underlying anxiety addressed at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a continually evolving field as well, like the study oh, of yeah. mental health. So who knows where we'll be in 50 years and if we'll look back on how we address various things in today's time looks completely archaic and not sufficient in its own right. Yeah, totally. I uh, got some listener mail. I do. It is from Sophie. Sophie says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I just finished listening to your episode about Julia Sand and Chester Arthur, and it brought up a lot of good memories for me. I got my undergraduate degree and ended up minoring in theater arts from the time I spent playwriting and stage managing. My first experience in the theater department was as an assistant stage manager for a play about Julia Sand. It was called Great Emergencies, and it was written by one of the graduate student playwrights, Sean DeMayer. I'm not sure how to say that person's name. I'm sorry if I have bangled it. The play incorporated a lot of Julia's letters into the dialogue, at times staging her as sitting at the table with President Arthur's advisors to show the influence her advice had on his decisions. The play also dramatized Arthur's relationship and ultimate falling out with Roscoe Conkling and the stalwarts and included a hilariously awkward portrayal of the day Arthur visited Sand's home. Apparently, she was so caught off guard that her first instinct was to try to hide behind the curtains. I remember finding it amusing how similar the political issues of the time were to us today. Extreme partisan politics, racist immigration policies. It's also impossible to avoid admiring Sand for taking the initiative and using her voice as a writer and political junkie, as you put it, to make a difference in the world when she had no way of knowing that anything would come of it. The play ended on a rather sad note with an imaginary conversation between Sand and Arthur's ghost who tells her that he's going to have all of his papers burned, leaving her with the impression that her letters will be burned with them so nobody will ever know who she was or what she did. I can only assume that her ghost would be pleased to know that through this podcast you were uplifting her and so many other forgotten voices in history. Hopefully these stories will inspire others to put their voices to use too, even when it seems the world will not listen. Keep doing what you're doing best, Sophie. Thank you so much, Sophie, for this awesome letter. I love hearing about this play as a former theater kid, especially. And I also love Julius Zan still. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missing History. That is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. You can look at where it says live shows and see our upcoming live shows over the summer. You can also find a searchable archive of every episode ever and show notes for the podcast that Holly and I have worked on. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tuman.